scripture reading to the book of the Revelation, chapter 1. The book of the Revelation, chapter 1, commencing our reading at the verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Let us come and hear together God's holy word. The Lord help us as we come to his word this night. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother, and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the floor, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. 
And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be thereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Amen. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. And may the Lord be pleased to bless, dear friends, that public reading of his most holy, infallible word. Precious it is to our hearts. May the Lord teach it to us here tonight and bring us a word in season. Let us pray. Well, dear friends, I ask you please to turn your prayerful attention once again to those words that I read to you there in the book of the Revelation and the first chapter. We began our series of studies last week, if you remember, in this book. And as I said, there are a number of theological um, or doctrinal subjects that will come up, and they will come up in a very natural and unforced way. We'll see some of these reoccurring. We have considered already, firstly, in the verse 1, have we not, God's absolute sovereignty in carrying out of all events in the world. Nothing in this world happens by chance. Nothing happens by accident. God hasn't simply sort of wound up the clock and walked away and waiting to see what's going to happen. But everything, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 11, is working after the counsel of his own will. God has determined whatsoever things should come to pass. We know from Isaiah 46 and other passages of Scripture, such as Daniel 9, that God has ordained everything in this world. Nothing is to chance. Everything is planned by God. And we note just the opening. Once again, I'm going to say things by way of review which I hope will be helpful, just the opening words. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There the word revelations, the word apocalypsos in the Greek. Sometimes people speak of apocalyptic uh, things happening. What they mean is things happening on a sort of a biblical proportion. But that is not what the word means. The word apocalypsis, there is exactly the word revelation. It means the revealing. That's what it means. It, it means the revealing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God, that's God the Father, gave unto him to show unto his servants. That's not just John, but all of his servants. The things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So the angel revealed these things to John. Of course, we know John is on the island of Patmos. And so we see in this very first verse here, the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, if we notice there, which must shortly 
come to pass. Now, of course, everything is contingent, isn't it? Things happen because one event happens. It has a knock-on effect, doesn't it? We have just, I suppose we could say, a new prime minister has been appointed and various things will happen because decisions are made. We read of Caesar's decree. But even Caesar's decree, when Caesar issued a decree that the whole world should be taxed, who decreed Caesar's decree? It was Almighty God that had decreed it. And under that decree of Caesar, we remember how the Lord Jesus Christ, how his parents took him away because we know even the evil one through Caesar tried to kill the Lord Jesus Christ as it was prophesied that the Savior, uh, even Herod, would try to put him to death. Even that decree was, we could even say, known to God because God determined it that he should be carried away. And uh, we know what happened in that day, that many of the firstborn were slain, weren't they? But the Lord Jesus Christ was spared because he would have to live those 33 years of perfect spotless obedience for his people. So everything is planned and ordained by Almighty God. And then we saw, if you notice again, verse 3, God's sovereignty in the elect hearing and keeping the word of God. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. Three things there that we saw. Blessed is that one that hears. Who is it that made us to hear? Peter, blessed are your ears and your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. Peter tells us that we're kept by the power of God through faith. How is it we keep? By God, isn't it? God causes us to keep because he gives us a new heart to keep his word. If there's any desire for God in us, he's put that in our hearts. What an encouragement this evening that is in and of itself. And we're reminded here why. Well, because the time is at hand. And then we saw, didn't we, in the verse 4, the doctrine of the church, the fact that the church is. Now, I know seven churches are mentioned here. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Here speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is. He was here in this world and is to come. Present, past there, and also future. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. We thought last time of that explanation there which we find in Isaiah chapter 11. Speaking of the sevenfold aspects of God's spirit. And you notice there it's spirit with a capital S. But we have here the doctrine of the church, don't we? And the seven churches are named. Seven churches. Now, number seven, as we said last time, is a special number in, in the book of the Revelation. In fact, a special number in the whole of the Bible. The high priest had to sprinkle the mercy seat seven times. There are seven days in the, in the week. It stands for 
complete or whole. Now, if you were to draw a line, if you perhaps later on, the end of this or tomorrow, if you were to look on a map at all these churches, Ephesus, you notice there, Smyrna, Pergamos, and in that exact order as it appears here, and that's how the churches are addressed in that exact order, if you were to draw a line from each church, you would have a circle. And that's a picture, isn't it, of the whole church. He's drawing a circle, as it were. Not just these seven churches, but here this is symbolic of, and you consider each of these churches, there are various um, admonitions that the Lord has to give. And what we have here is the church throughout all the ages, not only to these individual churches, but to individual Christians in those churches. And if we do a comprehensive study, we will see that the sins and things that are maligned within the churches, we all from time to time need the Lord's correction. Sometimes we need to hear as the church of Ephesus needed to hear, that it had lost its first love. Sometimes we may need to hear, as the church at Laodicea, the very last one, that we're lukewarm, that we're neither hot nor cold. And the Lord says, I would but spit you out. Now, of course, the Lord says that he stands at the door of that church and knocks. And uh, it's a real church. It's not unbelieving people. And sadly, the reference there to the church of Laodicea is presented as unbelievers. No, it's the real church. These are believers because the Lord says, as many as I love, them I chasten. He loves the church at Laodicea. And sometimes we're lukewarm. I pray we're not lukewarm this evening, but we're on fire for the Lord. And our hearts are burning with love for him. Well, every church, let me say, is made up of regenerate souls. We speak of regeneration. We have that word, don't we, in Titus chapter 3. Paul speaks about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. Everybody that is born again is a child of God. The church is not made up of unregenerate souls. This is why we have a church order. What we mean by that is People that have made a credible profession of faith and people that have been baptized, it's very, very, very clear from the Acts of the Apostles right at the beginning, at the start of the church in the New Testament, they joined in formal, open, enduring membership and they were accountable one to another. We just had a, a new church member join us recently and we're so thankful for that. Now, they could be counted. Why do we have church membership? If you notice there in Acts 2, 41 and 42 and 40, chapter 4, verse 4, they could all be counted. It says that 3,000 souls were added to them that day, added to those who were already there. There were 120, we're told in Acts chapter 1. They were all in that upper room praying. The church needs to be added to. Acts 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The church is added to. It is not a church. And I'm afraid some people have a very strange idea of a church. A church is not the congregation. Amidst the congregation, 
You will have believers and unbelievers. But if we have believed, we're part of the body of Christ. We ought to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and join the local church. Also, if you notice in Acts 6, verse 1, it was the church that selected the first deacons. Here we're considering very briefly the doctrine of the church. In Acts 14, they had to be clearly, officially gathered together to take decisions. You can't have people who are unbelievers and who are not committed to the local church make decisions. You can't have somebody who is unregenerate choose the next pastor or elders or deacons. That's just terrible, isn't it? But we have that today. We have that today. So common, isn't it? People who are not even born again, thinking that they belong to the church. Well, they are in one body and they carry out church discipline. We, we note this from Matthew 18. It says there in verse 17, if they will not hear the church... If that person that has offended another, the person must be cast out from church membership. There is to be such a a thing as church discipline. This is why the Bible is, is emphatically clear about church membership. And in order to properly carry out the Lord's communion, the Lord's table, and there needs to be a holy present corporate assembly there. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul had to admonish the church at Corinth because they weren't doing everything decently and in order. And there's another reason. There's seven reasons we could give at least why church membership is absolutely clear in the New Testament. It's not a novel idea. It's not something that the Puritans came up with. It's, it's not something that came up in the Reformation. It's right there in Acts chapter 2. And there's a, an epistle to the various churches in the New Testament. And they are clearly also, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, those who are church members, you notice there, it says, the apostle says, obey them that have rule over you. And if you are not a church member, you can't obey that commandment, can you? Because you have nobody to rule over you. So there are very clear reasons for church membership. Very clear biblical warrant for the existence of the careful maintenance of a local church membership. And we believe that. And you'll notice as we we study the epistles, as we we come to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of the Revelation, there are some very searching letters to individual churches and Christians within those churches um, to heed the things that the Lord Jesus Christ says. So who is the church? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 20, Paul, when he says his farewell to the elders of Ephesus, they come down to Miletus to meet him. And, and he says to them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. So the elders... Pastors and teachers have a great responsibility to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who is the church? The church comprises those that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not everybody has been purchased with the blood of Christ, but the elect have. And the elect will join the body of Christ as true believers. 
And so here we have the seven churches, symbolic of wholeness and completeness. As I said, seven days in a week, the priest sprinkled the Ark of the Covenant seven times. Even the man with leprosy, he was sprinkled seven, it's just seven times. It's just a, a number symbolic of completeness or whole. And again, we have the seven spirits of God. And there, as we thought last week in Isaiah 11, how it speaks of the manifold work of the Spirit in which Christ was fully endued. Now, we come to the verse 6 this evening. Uh, I gave an introduction, really, to chapter 1 last week. But I want to look more closely at the church and then the doctrine of Christ tonight in this chapter. And you notice here, those who are the Lord's, out of these churches, verse 6, and have made us, that's those, the elect, kings and priests unto God. Now we are to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. In that sense, we're a, we're a high priest. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ offered himself up, but we are to offer up ourselves to God, not as a dead sacrifice, not for atonement, but to serve him. But we're also kings because we will reign with him, not just now, over our sin. Sin no longer reigns, but grace reigns. And Christ is in us. And if Christ is reigning, we will reign over our sin now, but we will reign forever with him in the new heavens. Paul says, if we by the Spirit do put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. And uh, we must remember that the Lord will give us crowns of glory in heaven one day, but the glory will be to him, will it not? It is all of Christ, isn't it? And hath made us kings and priests. We didn't do it on our own, unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now you notice there, Christ reigns now. To him be glory and dominion. He has dominion right now. We believe in what we call the amillennial position. It means that Christ, there is not a thousand-year reign. That's simply what it means, a literal earth thousand-year reign. But we believe that Christ is actually sat down now, because that's what the Scriptures assert, seated at the right hand of the majesty of God. Why? Because he's reigning until he makes his enemies his footstool. If you notice there in Hebrews chapter 1, we are given a, a glimpse of Christ. And what the Father has said to him, remember, Paul tells us, when he purged our sins there upon the cross, what, what happened the moment he breathed his last? He passed through the heavens, as it were. Remember, he said to his Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he said to the malefactor, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. His body, yes, went to the grave. But his spirit went to be in heaven. And we are told there when he purged our sins, verse 3, that when he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you notice that? Hebrews 1, verse 3. And then you come down to the verse 
13. And uh, there's a reference here to the psalm. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? That's a reference to the Psalm 110. Are they not? That's the angels. All ministering spirits send forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. You see? To which of the angels did the Father ever say, sit at my right hand? The Father's already said it. That's where Christ is. He's reigning till he makes his enemies his footstool. We simply don't believe that Christ is going to fight some sort of battle here with army tanks and nuclear weapons and helicopters uh, against sinful men. The altogether powerful Jesus Christ will come, as he said, upon the clouds of glory. And every eye, as we have read here, shall see him, and so on. Verse 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. On all they which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega. We thought last week these are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And that is who Christ is the author of all things, author of our salvation, and the finisher of our faith. He has planned everything from beginning to end. There's nothing left to chance, is there? He is the beginning and the ending. He is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. And he will be the one that will say, judgment day, and judgment day will come. Saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I know we saw some of these verses. Now we see John here is on the island of Patmos, verse 9. Patmos is a penal place, a place where exiled Christians were placed, who were suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And this is where John is. I, John, who am awesome and brother and companion, in tribulation. That's a very interesting expression, that, isn't it? A companion in tribulation. What does John mean? John is saying, in a sense here, when he says, I, your, your brother and companion in tribulation, many Christians were sharing in the tribulation that John was sharing in. John is suffering for Christ. He's a companion. He's a, he's a fellow sufferer with the brethren who are suffering in tribulation. I mean, you, you've only got to read First Peter and Second Peter and James, the epistle to the Hebrews, and you see, as Paul says to the Hebrews, how many Christians already were made as a gazing stock. They would gather Christians and encircle them and beat them. We speak of the diaspora. The, the many that were dispersed throughout Asia Minor. That's where the churches are here. These seven churches, just by the Aegean Sea, just above the Mediterranean Sea, there's a, a little sort of cul-de-sac up there. It's called the Aegean Sea. Modern-day Turkey is where it is. And all of these are suffering. John is on this island of Patmos. Many have been scattered. Remember what the Apostle Paul said 
Yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They suffer in various ways, and Christians suffer now. You may suffer in the workplace. You may suffer in the home. People will persecute you in very ways, very many ways, either physically, emotionally. We will suffer. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But then he says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's not going to get better, says the Apostle Paul. It's going to increase, we're told, are we not, in the world, as the world becomes darker. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, didn't he? And also there in chapter 25, he, he reminds us in both those chapters how the end times are going to be worse. But he says, in your patience possess ye your souls. One of the great themes of this chapter is tribulation, but also patience, but also the kingdom, God's kingdom. Keep these things in mind. We're being told here. It's not going to get any better as time moves on. Well, these are the themes, as I mentioned. Tribulation, patience, and the kingdom of heaven. Many here. John says he is a companion with those who he is writing to in these churches. They are even being persecuted. Companion in tribulation. Now, it says here he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is, John was not only full of the Holy Spirit, but he has given visions and signs and wonders. Of course, every Christian ought to be filled with the Spirit. But here, in a special and an unusual way, John was given wisdom and understanding. God gave him this um, apocalypso here. And a, 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 the other word is perusa. He sees it's what is to come. He is told, he, he hears what the angel says, the angel speaks. Now also the Lord speaks. Notice, and verse 10b, heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. He heard, as it were, the voice of Christ saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. The title is already used. We read it earlier. And what thou seest, write in the book. And we're thankful that John has just done that, hasn't he? We're reading it. All scripture, yes, has been given by inspiration of God. These are not John's thoughts. The Lord has told him, write these things that you see, that you hear, John. The saints need to hear it. The servants of God, verse 1, need to hear it. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. You notice this is the same order that we'll find the churches in in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Now it says here, John heard this great voice. It, it, it's a voice like a trumpet. It's royal. It's regal. It comes with authority. Of course, it's the Lord's voice. And in a sense, it's sent to the churches, but it's also to us, isn't it? We're thinking here how the Lord is in the midst, and we read here that Christ is in the midst of these lampstands. As we thought of this circle, Christ is in the midst of the lampstands. And we're told here that the lampstands, a 
at the end of this chapter, represent what? The churches. And Christ is in the midst of the churches, and he's in the midst of his people, and he also speaks, doesn't he? He speaks at the church, and where the word of God is faithfully preached by properly ordained ministers, those who are called, for when he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men, Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, the Lord speaks, and he speaks through his ministers. And this is so important. The Lord doesn't speak, I believe, outside of the local church. This is the ordinary way in which he speaks by his ministers. It's an important point to make. Now, we'll see further here now the symbolism concerning Christ. We're going to look at Christ in verse 12 and on to 14 here. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. We'll come to that at the end. We know those seven golden candlesticks we see at the end of this chapter represent the church. But as I say, we'll come to that later. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, why, why the Son of Man? Why, why this expression? Of course, he is the Son of God. But friends, there was a time when he was not the Son of Man as such. He hadn't come into the world. He's always been the second person of the Trinity. He's always been God, the Son. But he would have to become the Son of Man in order to be the last Adam. He is both Son of God and Son of Man. And uh, we notice here how he's clothed in the garments of what? The high priest. And I want you to notice, in Exodus 28, in the verse 4 there, we have a, a, a very clear detail as to the garments of Aaron the high priest. It says concerning Aaron, and these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod, and a robe, and a broidered coat, a mitre. He had a fair mitre on his head. And uh, a girdle, we note. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron. Now this is the high priest who wore these particular garments when he was on duty. When he was not on duty, he wasn't wearing these garments. He, he had to take them off. But here's the high duty in his full attire, ready to go and uh, to present that offering and to sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood. And he had to wear these garments. He wore these once a year. And it says they're clothed down to the foot. Now, the high priest's garments on that particular occasion were down to the foot completely covered, and there were bells underneath, pomegranates, made out, bells made out of these pomegranates, so that there was an announcement as he, as he went in. So normally, it was, it was only worn when the high priest was on duty. And this is the, the vision that we're given here. Christ is our high priest. And that's the sense he, the, the vision John is given is that Christ is on duty. He is doing his work on behalf of his people. 
And it says there, girt about the paps with a golden girdle or this sash. That's what he, he wore, but he only wore that on that specific occasion. And, and that's what Christ is clothed with here. He's presenting himself as the offering for his people. And he is interceding for them. That's what the high priest would do. Interceding on behalf of the people, praying. He would go in and pray for the people. And he would come out again and the people would rejoice because he wasn't slain, because God had accepted the blood of the Lamb. And here Christ is ever on duty. That's the sense. And that is what is being set before us. And that's what we're to understand. This, no doubt, would encourage us. Our high priest is not in the grave. Though they put him to death, he's alive forevermore. He's in heaven. Paul says we have an anchor that is within the veil, gone behind the veil. Remember how the temple veil was torn in two from not bottom to top, but top to bottom, signifying that God, by his Son, had made open that new and that living way through his dear Son for sinners. And now he's pleading on their behalf. We're told in Hebrews 7, and the verse 25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, that's by Jesus Christ, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What is it to make intercession? To pray, to plead on their behalf. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests, says Paul, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did once when he offered up himself, that is for our sins. Isn't that wonderful? And that's the picture we have here. So he's pleading for his people. But there's also something else, as we'll see. But first of all, I want you to get this glimpse here with me. Here is Christ. He's in the midst of of the churches. And he's doing exactly what he said to his disciples. Remember there in Matthew 28 when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And uh, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now he reigns. And then he said, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And then he said these words, and lo, I am with you. When? Even unto the end of the world. Amen. And wonderful. Christ is doing just that here. Remember what he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, lo, I am there in the midst. Matthew 18, verse 17, through to the verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And that's a precious thing for us, isn't it? And this would have been such an encouragement for John that the Lord is there. Now you notice verse 13, And in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps, 
or the chest with a golden girdle. If you turn to Daniel chapter 7, you notice in Daniel chapter 7, in the Old Testament there, and the verse 13, these are almost identical words to what Daniel sees and what Daniel says by the Spirit of God. It's simply astounding. It's wonderful. It says there in Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and we'll see in a moment that Daniel not only saw the Son of Man who was to come, but he sees the judgment day. Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. You see, behold, he says, take notice. Behold, Son of Man. And then you'll notice his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Well, as we said, he is both the Son of God, but he is the Son of Man, fully God and fully man. Well, he had to be in order to be our Savior, because everything was lost in Adam, the first Adam. So this is why he had to become the last Adam, in order to atone for our sin, in order to be our representative. He had to come as a man. That's why he's called the Son of Man. And of course, if you just turn to Daniel chapter 12, not only do we see in Daniel chapter 9 the Messiah being cut off not for his Uh, for the sins of his people. But Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, is given a vision, a sight of the last day, and also of eternity. You notice in verse 1, partway through verse 1, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Everyone shall be found Written in the book, it's the Lamb's book of life. Now notice verse 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Words very similar do we not find the Lord Jesus speaking of in John chapter 5. He said, Marvel not, the hour is coming. He said, Marvel not, some will be raised to everlasting life, some to everlasting damnation. And we notice, and they shall be wise, that shall be wise, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they shall turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. My friends, that's eternity. And Daniel saw it by God. Now you notice in the verse 14 here, Revelation 1 verse 14, Speaking here of Christ, we have this glorious vision of Christ. This one clothed in the garments of the high priest, officiating on duty, discharging his office. 
Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. It's believed, most would say, and I agree with this, that here depicted is, is he, as we've read in Daniel, the ancient of days. He was from everlasting. But we also notice his eyes were as a flame of fire. What is that? Well, we have these penetrating eyes. Fire. His eyes, as it were, can see everything. He can burn through a man's pretense and a man's hypocrisy. Christ, he has those all-consuming, all-penetrating eyes. His omniscience. He knows all things. Nothing is hid from him. He has eyes as a flame of fire. He will burn away pretense of your life. Are we not told everything is naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do? Is he not the Lord who says, I search the heart, I try the reins of a man to give every man according to his ways? He's the same Lord. Something else we notice in verse 15, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned. In a furnace. Well, what is signified here? Think of the fine brass in a fire. If you've sadly ever touched anything hot, we were speaking about this earlier, that's come out of a fire and it's burnt you. But think of brass, it takes intense heat to burn brass. But here, these feet are ready to trample and to scorch and to outpace any of his enemies. Feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Formidable. Well, none of his enemies will escape him. That's, the, that's what we get from this, isn't it? Who can escape his wrath? We're told much later that men will hide, for the wrath of the Lamb is come. The judge of all the earth. And we read here, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Well, where do we find this? Well, the very context of all this is not only are the churches to be comforted that Christ is in the midst, but here we're speaking of judgment, penetrating eyes, the all-seeing one, the glorious God that shall come in judgment, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Think of the last time this earth heard the many waters, the breaking up of the fountains of the deep, the heavens gave way to all that rain and God destroyed this entire world. And his voice, as it were, is the sound of many waters. Well, the whole context here is judgment. Think of that great judgment day, the first worldwide judgment. The ancient world was ended. But when he comes, he will melt everything with fervent heat. He will come with fire. Judgment, it will be formidable. You know, the earth was spared. But we are told even the elements shall melt at his coming. Now you notice verse 16. But behold, his ministers, here we read, we see 
or in his hands. What a comfort this is. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, we've seen this before. We saw it last time. That these seven stars are his angels. And the word angel, you should know in the scripture, means messenger. And to each of the churches is given the letter to the angel of every church, to the minister. It's not the ministers or angels, we're far from it. But the word means minister. And he had in his right hand seven stars. That's a comfort. And John surely was a minister of the word of God. He ministered at Ephesus, we know. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Again, it's judgment. But the word of God has a two-fold effect, doesn't it? It will save some, and it will destroy others. It will, we know from God's word, he says, my word shall not return unto me void. You think of the, the two-edgedness of the word of God. Remember James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy, James 4, verse 12. And what do his ministers speak? His word. But effectively, it's Christ. He's speaking. Basically, what is being said is men will be judged, firstly, according to his word. It's the word, the, the two-edged sword. We, we, we know from Hebrews 4, 12, that the word of God is described as a two-edged sword. We're told there, Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it do? It pierces even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's by this word that many of us have been pierced in our hearts to salvation. We've been pricked. Just as when Peter preached the word that day, at the day of Pentecost, and many were converted. But by this word, my friend, many will rebel, but they will fall by this word, will they not? And they'll be judged by the word of God. Isaiah 55, verse 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. We must remember that. How are we hearing the word? How does the word of God find you here tonight, my friend? Believing, trusting, or resisting the word? Well, if we're believing, it's because of the grace of God. If we're resisting, it's because of our sinful nature. Now notice, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John had such a sight of the Lord. He's not physically dead, but he was as a dead man, taken up, as it were, with awe and wonder. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Isn't that amazing? The Lord knew John's fear sense of all, but yet he comforted him. I'm he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. This would have been such a comfort for John, no doubt. The very one who he saw die upon the cross. The one who he said, behold thy mother. 
Remember when he said to John, in effect, take care of my mother. I'm alive now. I was dead. Yes. He's alive because death could not hold him. Remember that day Peter preached at Pentecost and he said to the Jews, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Why? Because he had no sin of his own. The wages of sin is death. Christ never earned death. All he earned was righteousness. A righteousness for his people. But he paid for the death of his people. He suffered that death. He was alive. John would have been so encouraged, wouldn't he? John pens, does he not, in John chapter 14 and the verse 19. Remember that night when the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed. And he said, let not your heart be troubled. And remember he said at that same hour, he said, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me because I live. Ye shall live also. You're going to live as well. Because I live. You shall live also. Now John is no doubt reflecting on this. I'm alive forevermore, John. He's been given this glorious sight of the Savior. Behold, I'm alive forevermore, never to die again. That wonderful. And he is the first fruits. Yes, and if we die, you see, we, we join with Christ in all that he's accomplished. And you notice two other things here. Put to us symbolically, he has the keys of hell and death. And have the keys of hell and death. Well, the word hell here is the word Hades. And it's simply the place of the damned. And this is solemn, isn't it? This, this would be an encouragement for John. Because all those who persecute, that's where they're going. And all those who hate Jesus Christ, remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Jesus Christ is God. And all the accursed and all the unbelieving and all the abominable and liars and unbelieving will be in that place of hell. Christ has the keys. That is, the word here, key, means authority. It's not a physical key, but he has the authority because he is judge of all men. And he has the keys of death. He has the authority over death because he accomplished, should we say, victory over death. Who has ever accomplished victory over death but Christ? This is why we read, don't we, in 1 Corinthians, about, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Christ has accomplished death. And all who are in Christ, in joy, should we say, this power over death, what can death do to me? If we're in Christ, we're saved from death. Now I just close with a few things.
You think of this, these candlesticks. It's so important for us to think about. Very briefly, three things about this candlestick, these candlesticks, the churches, because it's addressed to the churches, isn't it? Think of the maker of the candlestick. It's God. Who designed the candlesticks in the book of Exodus for the tabernacle was the Lord. Moses received all the instructions from the Lord. The candlesticks are the churches. We're told that here. But think of everything that Christ has done. Remember the Lord said, I will build my church. The candlesticks here represent the churches. We're told that. And how is it that we are... These candlesticks, remember what he said to his disciples in Matthew 8. Ye are, and the whole design and purpose of the candlestick is is to shine forth light. He says, ye are the light of the world. Ye are the salt of the earth. A candlestick is no good to put under a bushel, but to put on a lampstand. Is it not? But we are light in the Lord, because he has put his spirit in us. He's changed us, he's converted us, and therefore we belong, do we not notice the churches? We belong to the local church. And God deals with us through the local church. And the local church, the primary primary responsibility of the local church is to glorify God, to shine. When you go through those Beatitudes, there's eight of them. Right through them, the Lord is showing the character of the true Christian. And so much as we pertain to each one of those Beatitudes, we are light. The light is not simply the gospel, but it is, he says, you are the light. If we walk after this world, we're in darkness. But if we walk With the Lord, we walk in his light and in his likeness. And these are, secondly, golden candlesticks, pure gold. And just as the goldsmith was asked, when is the gold ready? When is it pure gold? He says, when I can see my reflection in the crucible. It's tried and it's tried and it's tried, isn't it? Till all the dross is removed from the gold. Dross is no good in gold. It's not pure gold. And Christ desires to see the reflection of himself in each of his people. And that is done in the church. The church has always been. You say, where do you get that from? Acts 7.38. Stephen says, this is he that was in the wilderness. This is he that was in the church, in the wilderness, with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai. The church has always been, ever since Genesis 4, when men began to call on the name of the Lord. The church existed long before Israel, ever did. It's always been there. The church of God's called out people. Acts 7, 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. Stephen is referring back to the Old Testament. Church has always been. Church has always been a body of 
believers, sometimes called the remnant, the true people of faith, the household of faith, as we're told. And you see, we only shine so much as Christ shines in us and in our hearts. Paul tells us, indeed, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And if God has shined in your hearts, friends, he that has begun a good work in you will see it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. And one day we'll see him and be with him. The purpose of the candlestick is to shine light and the glory of God as he so worked in our hearts in this dark world where we are persecuted, where we are hated. But don't we thank God that we have his light? The psalmist says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. They giveth understanding to the simple. Yeah. People who receive the simplicity of the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Simple. We're sinners, aren't we? This world is passing and God is coming. Peter says to the believers there, he says, how they are to live as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Christ is coming. Has he not said, lo, I come? And the church is to emit light. What kind of light? Preach the word. Live out the word. The word. Be constant. Be pure. He walks amidst the golden lampstands. Those who love the Lord will see him. Malachi 3.3, 3, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Well, may the Lord help us to live as lights. The coming chapters are very searching to each of the churches, and they will no doubt be searching to us. Cause us to examine our hearts. But think of the immense worth of a candlestick. I just close with that. This world would be in darkness without Christians, without Christ, and without Christians. That's why he said, You are the light of the world. God has given you the truth. What do you do with it? You let your light shine before men, that's your good works. And your knowledge of Christ, is it known to men? Are you the saver of life to some? You'll be the saver of death to some, but you'll be the saver of life to others. Well, friend, one day we will see him who is the light of heaven, and we will thank him for all that he has done for us. In his mercy, he said, let there be light in that man's heart. Let there be light in that soul. 
you think the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we read, God said, let there be light. But there was a day, was there not, when he said to you and to me, or said, let there be light in that person's heart, in that person's life. And we came to know the light. Jesus is the light. Let us not walk in darkness. It's the book of the Revelation. May God reveal glorious things that are to come to pass. And may we have all of our hope in him, not in ourselves. Amen.